0: Welcome, USMLEers. My name is Zuka Zalishvili, and I'm the founder of USMLE. USMLE is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZOOS Now, let's start rolling. Today we start the pediatric series and this is the first episode in the pediatric series and we'll discuss several topics and just like we did in the surgery series, the topics that we'll discuss across this specialty are not necessarily related to each other. However, we'll try to be as comprehensive as possible, at least for the purposes of the USMLE Step2CK exam. And now let's start. The first topic that I would like to discuss with you is acute rhinosinusitis in children. Let's first concentrate on the clinical features of this condition and then move on with etiology and treatment. The signs and symptoms of acute rhinosinusitis include the facial pressure and the pain and nasal congestion with possible purulent drainage. Excuse me. Let's explain these findings. And let's come out from the name of the condition itself. Condition is called acute rhinosinusitis, which means that it's simultaneous rhinitis, or inflammation of the nasal mucosa, and sinusitis, which is inflammation of the paranasal sinuses, For example, maxillary sinusitis, frontal sinusitis, and so on. And when the sinuses get full of pus and the exudate, then there is the sensation of the facial pressure. When we palpate the patient's sinuses with acute rhinosinusitis, they feel like there is the pressure building up behind the skin of their face. And palpation of the sinuses will also cause the pain. Well, the rhinitis part of this condition accounts for the nasal congestion and the purulent discharge at the same time. Additional symptoms and signs might be fever because, well, this is an inflammatory uh, condition. There might be a cough as well. And let's explain why this might be the case. We know that whenever there is increased mucus production, whether it's and exudate or transudate in the nasal cavity, this mucus gets swallowed by the patient. And this phenomenon is called postnasal drip. Personally, I have the postnasal drip for a very long time, and I was diagnosed with non-allergic rhinitis. So the reason I'm telling you this is to make you realize that postnasal drip has a very broad differential. And acute rhinosinusitis is just one of these conditions which are united under the differential of the post-nasal drip. And post-nasal drip can irritate the cough receptors in the pharynx, which will then result in cough. The patient might also experience the headache, and the headache comes from the Uh, frontal sinusitis but at the same time we should mention the fact that frontal sinusitis can actually cause the spread of infection into the frontal lobes of the brain so we can actually get the frontal encephalitis or we can get the meningitis from the frontal sinusitis we might also have the loss of smell and loss of smell is caused by all of that mucus and the pus accumulating in the excuse me once again, accumulating in the nasal cavity, and we might also have the ear pain. The ear pain in this case is caused by the fact that mucus and pus accumulation in the nasopharynx clogs up the eustachian tubes, right, which are also called pharyngotympanic tubes because they connect the tympanic cavity with the nasopharynx, and it means that the equalization of the pressure between the atmospheric pressure and the pressure in the middle cavity does not occur anymore. And this can cause the ear pain. At the same time, the infection itself can spread to the ear, resulting in otitis media. Acute rhinosinusitis can be caused either by viruses or by bacteria. And let's talk about the differences between the presentations of viral and bacterial rhinosinusitis. In case of viral sinusitis, the symptoms are milder. So the patient usually has no fever and if there is any fever, then the patient usually has an early resolution of this fever. And as we just mentioned, the symptoms themselves are also milders. It means that when the patient is brought to the clinic by the guardian, the uh, this uh, little kid will appear relatively well. There might be mild facial pain, and... Viral rhinosinusitis usually resolves in a week, approximately 5 to 10 days. Now, let's compare viral rhinosinusitis to bacterial condition. In case of bacterial etiology, fever is usually prolonged. Specifically, it lasts at least three days, or we might have a complication of the patient's overall clinical course after initial improvement, or the patient might have the symptoms lasting at least 10 days. As you can see, all of these three criteria indicate that the infection is really, really severe. If the fever is prolonged, if the overall course gets worse after initial improvement, or if the symptoms last at least 10 days, it means that we are dealing with a serious microbe, and it's probably bacterial. Let's move on to the treatment of acute rhinosinusitis. The treatment, in the first place, focuses on the symptomatic relief. And what I mean here is that we try to decongest the nose by intranasal saline, we can do saline irrigation. And we can also give the NSAIDs to the patient, and the reason is that we need to relieve the facial pain caused by sinusitis. And then, if we suspect that rhinosinusitis is caused by bacteria, this is the only case. <clears throat> sorry, this is the only case when we actually give antibiotics. What I'm trying to say is that we don't give antibiotics to every single patient who has the classic signs and symptoms of rhinocinusitis because if it's viral, then this this is just uh, basically poor stewardship of the resources, right? We are just wasting antibiotics on the patients who actually don't need it and who will likely get better without the antibiotics. So once again, this is why it's very important to know the difference between the symptoms of the viral and bacterial etiologies of this infection. And this was the discussion about acute rhinosinusitis in children. Now we'll discuss the amblyopia. To say shortly, amblyopia is cortical blindness. However, this definition is a little bit nonspecific and I think misleading in several cases. So let me let me evaluate let me basically elaborate what I'm saying right now. Amblyopia is reduction in the visual acuity due to some kind of disturbance in the early childhood. In other words, there is some type of eye pathology in the early childhood when the primary visual cortex is still developing. And then, Since there is an abnormality in this period, the visual cortex does not develop normally. And the patient has decreased vision, and this might be in only one eye, in which case we will have unilateral amblyopia, which is actually the most common form of amblyopia. And this might also be in both eyes, in which case we'll say that the patient has bilateral amblyopia. However, we should know the exact definitions of both unilateral and bilateral amblyopia. The definition of the unilateral amblyopia is at least two line difference in the vision between the eyes. And when we say two line difference, here we mean the lines of this now chart. Let me remind you that the Snellen chart is a quick method of screening for the refractive errors. This is when the patient sits approximately 6 meters away from the chart, which contains the different, uh, different characters or the letters in different sizes. And then the patient is asked to read the letters or the characters of each size to find out how well they can see from the distance, and at least two line difference on the Snellen chart means that the patient might have, let's say, twenty over thirty vision in the left eye and twenty over fifty vision in the right eye. And let me use this moment, an opportunity, to explain what this classification and nomenclature means, because I feel like some of us get a little bit confused about this 20 over 30, 20 over 100, and things like this. And this is very important to read and correctly interpret the results of the Snellen chart. The numerator in this ratio exhibits the distance by which the patient should stand from the chart to read it clearly. And the denominator in this ratio denotes the distance, the original distance, between the snow and chart or any object and the patient. So let's let's take an example and discuss it, and I'm sure that it will be much easier given the example. Let's say that the patient's vision in both eyes is 20 over 100. This means that if a specific object is separated by 100 feet from the patient, the patient should approach this object on the distance of 20 feet in order to see this object clearly. In other words, this patient should cover or should approach this object by 80 feet in order to see it clearly, right? Because 100 feet minus 20 feet is the 80 feet. And the same logic applies to the interpretation of the other ratios. And there is one general rule of thumb. The closer this ratio is to one, meaning 20 over 20, the better the vision is, and the smaller numbers or characters the patient can see on the Snellens chart but the smaller this ratio is, for example, when we have the ratio of 20 to 200, then the worse the patient's vision is, and the patient is only able to read the first few lines of the Snell's chart. In case of 20 over 200 vision, the patient can only see the first biggest characters and the characters or the numbers. the snellen chart and actually the vision of less than or equal to 20 over 100 is an official definition of blindness and this is another important point blindness does not mean that the patient cannot see at all blindness has an official definition that the visual acuity is less than 20 over 100. okay let's get back to amblyopia right we discussed the criteria for unilateral amblyopia. But now let's move on to bilateral amblyopia. In case of bilateral amblyopia, the vision should be worse than 20 over 40 at the age of at least four. It means that if the child has, let's say, bilateral vision of 20 over 50 or 20 over 100, and this child is, let's say, six years, we can say that he or she does have amblyopia let's talk about the different causes of amblyopia as we mentioned amblyopia itself means decreased visual acuity due to ophthalmic pathology in the early childhood but what pathologies do we mean here this is the question right now one of the most common causes of amblyopia is strabismus guys do you know what strabismus means I hope you do and I believe you do but let me still remind you this strabismus to put it simply is any misalignment of the eyes or eye so strabismus might be unilateral or bilateral just like amblyopia and once again strabismus is a very nonspecific term in a sense that it might be the deviation of the eye in any direction for example Strabismus subtype called esotropia means deviation of the eye medially towards the nose. Exotropia, accordingly, will be deviation of the eye laterally or towards the temporal bone. Hypertropia means upward deviation of the eye, while hypotropia, accordingly, means downward deviation of the eye. And strabismus can definitely cause amblyopia because when, when the kid has the strabismus, the brain starts to block the signals coming from the deviated eye so that the patient can see just one normal image. And finally, the result will be that the kid won't be able to see from this deviated eye at all. And this is when we will call this amblyopia. Another reason... And cause of amblyopia is asymmetric refractive errors. And in refractive errors, we mean myopia, which is nearsightedness, or hyperopia, which is the uh, farsightedness. And finally, any cause of vision deprivation can also cause amblyopia. Let's say that the patient, the kid has cataracts, right? Oh, and I I think that's a great opportunity to do a clinical correlation. Zoosemiliers, can you tell me the congenital infection that can cause bilateral cataracts? Mm -hmm, I agree. Yes. Louder, louder? Mm -hmm. That's congenital rubella syndrome, right? One of the classic characteristics of the syndrome is the congenital cataracts together with the sensorineural deafness and the patent ductus but that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. So any cause of cataracts, right, whether it's congenital rubella syndrome or galactokinase deficiency, classic galactosemia, <coughs> excuse me, I don't, I don't know what's happening to my voice today. Right, so any cause of cataracts can eventually result in amblyopia. The same is true for the ptosis. Ptosis means the downward displacement of the upper eyelid, and this can actually block the visual signal going to the ipsilateral primary visual cortex. Okay, now let's talk about the management of the patient with amblyopia. Amblyopia can be managed with the corrective lenses, However, I think what's more high yield for the USMLE Step 2 CK exam is the penalization therapy. What does penalization therapy mean? Penalization therapy means that we penalize or we restrict the vision from the normal eye. And what's the rationale behind this? We are trying to force the child's brain to use the visual signal coming from the defective eye. Let's say that the patient has right-sided strabismus with esotropia. In that case, we can patch the left eye. We always patch the normal eye because, once again, we want to block the visual signals coming from the normal eye and to force the brain to utilize the defective eye. At the same time, what we can do is to administer the cycloplegic drops to the normal eye. Cycloplegic, the word itself, means paralysis of the ciliary body. And uh, we can use any anti agents for this, right? Atropine, homatropine, cyclopentolate. And when we paralyze the ciliary body, it means that the patient loses the ability of accommodation in that eye. So we force the brain to use the signal coming from the defective eye. And finally, if the patient has some kind of uh, anatomical problem, let's say cataracts, we can do the cataract removal, right? We can replace the lens and that can prevent the development of amblyopia in a child. And this was discussion of the amblyopia. Let's now discuss the anemia of prematurity. Anemia of prematurity is what it actually says. This is anemia in the premature neonates. Now, what causes anemia of prematurity, or AOP? AOP is caused by several factors. One of them is impaired erythropoietin production. Generally, when the baby is born preterm, Almost all the functions, all the normal functions are immature, right? And uh, one of them is epoproduction by the interstitial fibroblasts of the peritubular uh, capillary bed in the kidneys. So if we have less erythropoietin, it means that there is insufficient bone marrow stimulation to perform erythropoiesis that is RBC production. Okay, let's just stop here and let me ask you a question, zoosemiliers. What do you think? What kind of anemia is anemia of prematurity? Is it microcytic, normocytic, or macrocytic? I hope you're telling me that it's normocytic, normochromic anemia, and the reason behind this is what we have just said probably several minutes ago when we don't have enough erythropoietin for the bone marrow, there is insufficient signal of RBC production. However, the RBCs that are still produced by the bone marrow are absolutely normal. They are normocytic, meaning the relative average size of the RBCs is anywhere from 80 to 100 femtoliters, and they are normochromic, which means that mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration is anywhere from 31 to 36 percent of the erythrocyte volume okay let's move on to the other causes of anemia of prematurity which contribute to the impaired epo production so i don't want you guys to think that these are the three distinct causes which separately result in AOP. No, they work together, they play together in order to result in anemia of prematurity. Preemies also have shortened RBC lifespan. Do you guys remember what the normal erythrocyte lifespan is in a healthy adult? Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. This is 120 days. However, when the baby is born preterm, the average RBC lifespan is much shorter than this. And it means that, so RBCs are destroyed, so senescent RBCs are destroyed by the splenic macrophages so fast and so quickly that bone marrow doesn't have chance to release sufficient amount of the RBCs into the circulation. In other words, the rate of destruction of the senescent RBCs is higher than the rate of RBC production in the bone marrow. And finally, the blood sampling or blood drawing by the doctors can also be the reason for anemia of prematurity. Because once again, if we draw blood from the preterm baby, and this is actually a routine uh, thing because we need to screen the baby for several congenital diseases and genetic diseases, right? But if we draw excessive blood from the baby, then this might, again, deplete the total RBC mass, and the bone marrow will not be able to replete this RBC deficit quickly, and this will result in anemia. Now, the most common presentation of AOP is that the preemies are usually asymptomatic, It might be an incidental finding on the complete blood count. However, if anemia of prematurity is really severe, then it will certainly result in manifestations like tachycardia. And I'm talking about the reason of tachycardia in cases of anemia in our respiratory series for step one. But let me briefly explain it here too. Whenever the person, either neonate, child or adult, has anemia, then oxygen delivery to the tissues is decreased. And therefore, the heart tries to beat faster to make the oxygen delivery to the tissues normal. I mean, to compensate for decrease in hemoglobin concentration. And this is exactly why preterm neonate with anemia of prematurity might still have tachycardia. There might also be the signs of Failure to thrive, let's say poor weight gain, and sometimes the baby might develop apnea due to anemia. As for the laboratory findings, I think they are very predictable from our recent discussion, right? Any anemia is characterized by low hemoglobin and hematocrit, with 3 to 1 ratio. But here's the thing. In case of anemia of prematurity, There will be low reticulocyte count. Guys, can you tell me the reason why there is a low reticulocyte count in the AOP? Are you saying that reticulocytes are low due to insufficient bone marrow signal from the insufficient erythropoietin? If you are, you are totally correct. This is exactly the reason for a low. Reticulocyte count. And we already mentioned that this is normocytic, normochromic anemia. Now, how do we treat anemia of prematurity? Well, if the iatrogenic blood sampling can contribute to AOP, we need to minimize the blood draws as much as possible. However, it does not mean that we are not drawing the blood from the preterm babies. That's not true. We should simply try to minimize this. At the same time, we should try to supplement the iron. And let's talk about this. We have not said that anemia of prematurity is an iron deficiency anemia. Then here's my question to you. Why do you guys think that we still give iron supplementation to a preemie with AOP? I hope you have an answer on this, but let me still tell you what the reason here actually is. So, we said that bone marrow does not have enough stimulatory signal from the erythropoietin to release enough amount of the RBCs in the peripheral circulation. However, the bone marrow tries very hard to produce as many RBCs as possible. And to produce a perfect RBC with the necessary amount of hemoglobin, we need specific amount of iron, right? Because hemoglobin contains the iron as the part of the heme group. And it means that bone marrow in anemia of prematurity might get depleted of iron very fast because it's using this iron to release as many RBCs as possible into peripheral circulation, and we are simply supplementing the bone marrow with this iron so that it does not get run out of it. And finally, we might also need to perform blood transfusions if anemia of prematurity is very severe and the patient needs immediate intervention. Okay, this was discussion about the anemia of prematurity. Let's talk about the APGAR score right now. Apgar score is very, very important, and it's usually measured twice after delivery. It's measured at one minute after delivery and then at five minute interval after delivery. And then these two numbers are compared to each other to find out how the baby is doing and how the baby is dealing with this external environment and so on. APGAR score contains five criteria and each of the letters in the word APGAR stand for each of these five criteria. But before we discuss these criteria in detail separately, let's talk about the general rule of assessment and scoring of the APGAR uh, system. Each criteria gets maximum Of two points and a minimum of zero points, which means that the total APGAR score can be a maximum of 10 and the minimum of zero. Well, if the APGAR score is total, APGAR score is zero, it means that the neonate is probably dead. Okay, now let's start talking about the individual criteria. The first A stands for appearance. In appearance, we mean the color of the newborn's skin. If the baby is completely pink, it means that the baby has sufficient perfusion and the blood flow to the skin and to the periphery. And therefore, the baby gets two points for this criteria. If the baby has acrocyanosis, she or he gets one point for appearance. Let's discuss what acrocyanosis means. Acro, the word acros in Greek means edge it means periphery and cyanosis well it means the bluish discoloration of the skin right so acrocyanosis means bluish discoloration of the periphery of the body and periphery is the extremities right so if the baby's trunk and head are red but the extremities are blue then the baby gets one point for the appearance. And finally, if the baby is completely blue or completely pale, this means that baby has insufficient perfusion and insufficient blood flow, which will result in zero points in the appearance. P stands for pulse. First of all, let me pose a question to you. Guys, do you know what the normal heart rate of a fetus and a newborn is? I agree. This is anywhere from 110 to 160 beats per minute. And in this criterion, if the newborn's pulse is more than 100 BPM, then she or he gets two points. If his or her pulse is less than 100, then he or she gets one point. And finally, if the baby has no pulse... On the vital sign assessment, then the baby gets zero points. G stands for grimace and reaction. This is the baby's reaction to the stimulation. So if baby is coughing or sneezing or baby's crying out loud, then it means that he or she gets two points for the grimace and for, for the reaction. If there is only just mild grimacing of the face, without crying, without coughing, he or she will get one point. And then if there's absent reaction to the stimulation, for example, uh, rubbing on the skin, then this will result in zero points in this particular criterion. The second A stands for activity and the muscle tone. And, well, intuitively, if the baby has a very, very active movements, and if there are spontaneous extremity movements, it means that this, criteria, this criterion is met perfectly, and so the baby will get two points for this. However, if there is some flexion of the extremities, of the upper and lower extremities, both of them, but it's very weak, then baby will get one point for this criterion. And finally, if there's no movement, or if the baby is limp, then she or he will get zero points and the final criterion r stands for respiratory effort if the baby has a very very strong and loud cry and i'm sure like if you have heard the baby crying they are really loud right so if they are crying really loudly it means that their respiration is is working. And so, I mean, they they have very intense respiration, and that's why they will get two points. However, if they have a very weak and slow cry, then they will get one point. And finally, if there's no crying when when the baby is born, that's totally abnormal, and the baby will get zero points for this. Here's how the questions about the APGAR score works on both USMLE Step 1 and Step 2 CK. They will give you the combination of these different criteria and they will ask you what is the clinical, they might ask you well I cannot give you guarantee but they might ask you what the clinical significance of this score is and here is what I would like you to know. APGAR score is a snapshot in time. In other words APGAR score does not predict the overall outcome for the baby, neither neurological outcome nor cardiovascular or behavioral and cognitive outcome, nothing like this. It's simply a snapshot in time. APGAR score tells us how the baby is doing shortly after birth. And I would really, really like you to remember this because the distractor might say, that the APGAR score predicts poor, low APGAR score predicts the poor long-term outcome, but that's not necessarily true. Okay, this is how we wrapped up the discussion about the APGAR score. Let's talk about apnea of prematurity. And before we dive deep into this condition, let's let's just draw the line of contrast and the difference between the condition that we already discussed and the condition that we are going to discuss right now. In this episode today we have already talked about anemia of prematurity. However, what we are going to discuss right now is apnea of prematurity. Apnea means the episodes of absent breathing. First of all, the name itself implies that apnea of prematurity happens to the premature babies. And the general rule of thumb here is that the more premature the baby is at birth, the more likely she or he is, is to develop the apnea of prematurity. For example, 85% of infants who are born at less than 34 weeks of gestation are likely to develop apnea of prematurity. However, approximately ninety-nine percent of the infants who are born in the second trimester, meaning at less than 28 weeks of gestation, are likely to develop apnea. Let's move on to the clinical manifestations. Well, as just as we just said, apnea, so A is a negative prefix, and apnea means breathing. Apnea means no breathing, literally. And it is just the episodic cessation of the respiration, and each episode should last more than 20 seconds. And this is different from obstructive or central sleep apnea, which is a disease of children, adults, and adults, in which case the episode of cessation of breathing should be at least 10 seconds so please note this difference. Okay, let's get back to apnea of prematurity. And this apnea of prematurity is also associated with bradycardia and desaturation. Let's talk about this. We said that apnea means no breathing. And during the period when the baby is not breathing, well, certainly there is no gas exchange in the alveoli, right? Meaning the baby is not getting oxygen during the period of apnea. And this is why the baby gets desaturated. Desaturation simply means the drop in the oxygen saturation. And then how can we explain bradycardia? It sounds a little bit counterintuitive based on what we have explained previously in this lecture, right? We said that when, whenever there is, let's say, hypoxia or anemia, then the heart tries to beat faster in order to compensate for the oxygen delivery to the tissues. Here's the thing. The myocardium itself is also a tissue. And just like any other tissue in the body needs oxygen, the myocardium itself also needs a great amount of oxygen. And therefore... During the periods of apnea, there is insufficient oxygen delivery to the myocardium. And let me remind you from our step one knowledge that oxygen is necessary for ATP production, right? In the electron transport chain as the electron receptor. And if there is enough insufficient oxygen, it means that there is insufficient ATP production in the myocardium. If there is less ATP, there is less frequent myocardial contractions. In other words, the baby will have bradycardia. Okay, then the other thing that we need to mention in apnea of prematurity is that the baby looks well between the episodes. And this is very important. If the premature baby has apneic episodes, but the baby also appears uh, distressed between these episodes, then We should probably think about the other causes that i'll tell you in a second however if the baby looks well between the episodes of the apnea then it's more likely to be apnea of prematurity okay let's move on to diagnosis diagnosis is clinical we need to have a premature baby and we need to observe these episodes of apnea each lasting more than 20 seconds however here's the thing Apnea of prematurity is sort of diagnosis of exclusion, in a sense that we need to exclude other, more sinister causes of apnea before we say that it's apnea of prematurity. And, okay, I I have a question for you, another question. Guys, what do you think might be the other causes of apnea in a premature baby? Mhm I hear you I hear you you are saying maybe that's a seizure right seizure can present with apnea and plus when the baby is premature especially when the baby is born at less than 32 weeks of gestation then there is a high risk of intraventricular hemorrhage due to immature germinal matrix in the subventricular zone of the brain right and then if there if the baby develops intraventricular hemorrhage acutely then she or he might also develop apnea episodes and convulsive seizures. Infection might also be another common cause of apnea in premature babies. And then finally, let's discuss the treatment. Well, the treatment of apnea of prematurity revolves around the cns stimulants because we need to stimulate the medullary respiratory center so that the baby does not stop breathing intermittently caffeine can be administered for this purpose because as we know caffeine is a cns stimulant resulting in norepinephrine and dopamine release in the cns right and that can stimulate medullary respiratory center At the same time, we can use the different methods of non-invasive ventilation. For example, CPAP can be used here. And if they ask you the question about prognosis, I would like to know you that apnea of prematurity, in most of the cases, resolves on its own. And this is very, very important because however dangerous this condition might look like, it actually has a very, very benign and good prognosis. So this is how we summarized the apnea of prematurity. We will now move on to bacterial meningitis in children more than one month old. And let's start with the causative agents of bacterial meningitis in this age group. We know from the microbiology that Streptococcus pneumoniae is the most common cause of meningitis in mo- in almost all age groups except for neonates, right, where its group is streptococcus. Okay, therefore, the most common cause of bacterial meningitis in children more than one month old is strep pneumo. Another very, very important cause is Neisseria meningitis, right? And I would like to remind you that Neisseria meningitis causes not only meningitis, but it can also result in PTKA, and then Waterhouse friderichsen syndrome, which is an acute form of primary adrenal insufficiency. But we will not go into that direction in our today's episode because that's more of an endocrinology topic rather than pediatric. So we will focus on the bacterial meningitis. Let's move on to the clinical features. Well, we know that bacterial meningitis will very, very likely have the fever. And now the clinical features also depend on the age of the patient. If the kid is less than one years old, we know that the skull fontanelles are not closed completely, which means that Whenever there is meningitis with subsequent pus accumulation and increased intracranial pressure, this can actually distend the meninges and this can present as bulging fontanel. However, when the kid is more than one years old, then fontanelles are likely fused as a normal process and therefore there will not be bulging fontanelle because those fused Sutures will just keep that inflammation and increase intracranial pressure inside the skull. Less than one-year-old kids, so-called infants, also have very nonspecific findings like irritability and poor feeding. And this is true for almost all systemic infections, right? The infant cannot communicate their concern and their symptoms to us in terms of words, and therefore any kind of very deranged and very non-specific symptom like irritability, poor feeding, poor latching, should give us the high clinical index of suspicion for some kind of systemic illness, let's say bacterial meningitis. When we have a kid more than one years old, meaning toddler and older, then we will see the signs of increased ICP more, like headache. And the and, and the toddler might be able to communicate a headache, right? There might be vomiting, which is usually the symptom of intracranial, increased intracranial pressure, in this case, not always. And also, we might see the signs and symptoms of meningismus. And let's define the term meningismus, because what I have noticed is that some of us confuse the word meningismus with meningitis, but they are not necessarily the same. Meningismus, to put it in short, is the same thing as meningeal irritation, and it consists of several symptoms. This is um, headache, this is nuchal rigidity, and the photophobia. These three are the symptoms of meningeal irritation or meningismus. However, meningismus can be caused not only by meningitis, but also by anything else that can cause meningeal irritation, for example, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay, let's get back to meningitis. Yeah, we said that we will probably see meningeal signs or meningismus as well. How do we make diagnosis? Well, for definitive diagnosis of meningitis, we need to do CSF culture, from the lumbar puncture, right, or the spinal tap, But here's the thing, before we do the lumbar puncture, we need to find out if lumbar puncture is safe in this patient or not. Because if there is severely increased intracranial pressure, or if there is some kind of space occupying lesion in the brain, let's say that the kid has pilocytic astrocytoma, right, or any kind of brain tumor. In that case, puncturing of the dura and arachnoid and relief of the pressure might actually induce brain herniation across the foramen magnum. And this can actually kill the patient sooner than the bacterial meningitis, right? So in order to decide whether lumbar puncture is safe for the patient or not, we need to observe the clinical findings and the red flags here. So if the patient exhibits focal neurological symptoms or let's say altered consciousness, if the patient had loss of consciousness or seizure, it means that there's a high risk of herniation if we do the lumbar puncture. And in this case, we will start empiric antibiotics. However, if the patient does not exhibit any of these findings, meaning there's no focal neurological deficits, there's no seizure, altered consciousness, loss of consciousness. In that case, lumbar puncture is likely safe, and therefore, first we will do spinal tap with subsequent CSF culture, and then we will start antibiotic therapy to avoid this sterile CSF culture. Because the whole idea here is that we need to know the exact pathogen which is causing the patient's bacterial meningitis. And this is not due to our own academical interest, right? The reason why we need to know the exact microbe causing meningitis in the patient is that after empiric broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy, we need to step down, right? We need to tailor antibiotic therapy to the specific microbe to avoid development of antibiotic resistant in that particular patient. Okay, now let's talk about empiric management, specifically antibiotic therapy of the bacterial meningitis. Once again, bacterial meningitis is an emergent condition and we need to go broad. In other words, we need intravenous, broad-spectrum antibiotics. We definitely need to cover the... MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and for this, we will use vancomycin. And then we also need to cover the other two causes which we talked in the beginning of this discussion. This is strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitidis, and both of these microbes can be covered by IV ceftriaxone. (coughs) Excuse me. We can also use cefotaxime in babies because ceftriaxone is associated with hyperbilirubinemia, indirect hyperbilirubinemia, and the risk for kernicterus because it displaces the indirect bilirubin from the albumin. So we can use vancomycin and cefotaxime if we have a baby. But in children, vancomycin and ceftriaxone is completely decent. And here is one more thing. And let me explain this in the question format. So I'll pose a question to you. Which other microbe is on our differential in extremely young and elderly patients? Do you have any thoughts about this? Mm -hmm. That's listeria. Listeria monocytogenes commonly causes meningitis in immunocompromised patients, including the infants and also the elderly people. So if we have a patient with the signs and symptoms of bacterial meningitis in either of these two age groups or even pregnant patients, we need to add ampicillin for the listeria. And this was discussion of bacterial meningitis in children more than one month old. Let's discuss the Barlow and Ortolani maneuvers right now. And before we do this, we definitely need to talk about the condition which is detected, or at least suspected, by the Barlow and Ortolani maneuvers. Do you have any thoughts about what kind of pediatric condition I'm talking about? I hope you're telling me that we are going to discuss developmental dysplasia of the hip right now. Developmental dysplasia of the hip is when the acetabulum of the pelvic girdle is too shallow. We know that femoral head should, ins- should be inserted in the acetabulum very firmly so that it does not just pop out of the joint. However, if there is a very shallow, insufficiently developed acetabulum, then the femoral head cannot fit properly into this shallow acetabulum and therefore it can just pop out of the joint. And yeah, this is basically the pathophysiology of the developmental dysplasia of the hip or DDH in short. And DDH is first suspected by the Barlow and Ortolani maneuvers. One of them will displace the femoral head from the shallow acetabulum and the other one will replace the femoral head into shallow acetabulum. Barlow maneuver is actually the maneuver which will displace the femoral head. And in this maneuver, the pediatrician or the examiner will adduct the baby's hips and will apply the posterior pressure in order to displace the femoral head from the acetabulum. And I would like to recommend that you Google the illustrations showing the Barlow maneuver because I think seeing this maneuver and the movements will help us a lot to comprehend what is happening here. On the other hand, Ortolani maneuver is an exact opposite of Barlow maneuver. So in Ortolani maneuver, we are performing bilateral hip abduction with the anterior pressure to the baby's hip, and this will insert the femoral head into the acetabulum. And now let's briefly mention the developmental dysplasia, sorry, treatment for the DDH. The treatment is the harness, which is specifically called the Publix harness. This is the harness which fixates the femoral head into the acetabulum. And in that case, the baby is basically fixated in this position of the flexed hips, and this will ensure the proper development of the esotabulum after birth. Okay, this was discussion of the Barlow and Ortolani maneuvers in the context of DDH. Let's move on to the biliary cysts. Biliary cysts are another pediatric condition, and it is exactly what it what it says. Biliary cyst is a cystic dilatation of the biliary tree, either extrahepatic, intrahepatic, or both. There are several types of cysts. As I remember, there are five different types of cysts, but you should check me up on that. And the type 1 cysts are the most common type. Type 1 cysts are extrahepatic, meaning they only involve the extrahepatic bowel ducts but they do not involve the intrahepatic ones. And in type 1 cyst, we have just a single large cyst, usually in the common bile duct or colidoccus. As for the clinical features, there will be a triad of pain, jaundice, and the palpable mass. Well, pain is caused by this palpable mass compressing the other neighboring structures. And let's talk about the jaundice because it has at least for me, more interesting uh, cause and mechanism. And let's explain this in a question format. Zua Samuel why do you think that the patient with the biliary cyst has jaundice? I hope you're telling me that biliary cyst causes accumulation of the bile in the cyst itself, and then this bile can actually go back. Or it might have this retrograde flow into the intrahepatic ducts and then into the uh, uh, liver liver sinuses, right? And this will cause the jaundice. And can you tell me what type of hyperbilirubinemia will there there be? Will it be direct or indirect? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. This will be direct hyperbilirubinemia because the bile contains direct bilirubin. Okay. And the biliary cysts are usually seen in children less than 10 years old. In order to diagnose the biliary cysts, we first need to see those cysts on the right upper coordinate ultrasound, which is very non-invasive and relatively cheap procedure. And then after we see and after we confirm the presence of the biliary cysts, on the ultrasound, then we can move on to more invasive procedures such as ERCP, which stands for endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. And in endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, we go down through the esophagus with the endoscope, we incise this major duodenal papilla, and we go into the Vater, and then into the common bile duct and we can literally resect this biliary cyst. And this is actually the treatment for the biliary cysts. It's resection. Resection will definitely help with obstruction, and the patient will likely have relief of the jaundice, relief of hyperbilirubinemia, and the symptoms caused by the retrograde bowel flow. But at the same time, and much more importantly, resection of the biliary cyst will decrease the risk and will actually prevent the malignant transformation of the cyst. This is, I think, the most important point of this discussion, because malignant transformation is one of the biggest problems for retained biliary cysts. And this was discussion about the biliary cysts in children. Moving on from the biliary cysts, now we will discuss the biliary atresia. And before we go deep down into this condition, let me tell you that biliary cysts and the biliary atresia are totally different things in terms of their pathology and the appearance. Although both of them will cause retrograde bile flow with direct hyperbilirubinemia and possible hypercholesterolemia, biliary cysts are biliary cysts, meaning there is either one or several cystic dilations in either extrahepatic, intrahepatic, or both extra and intrahepatic bile ducts. However, in biliary atresia, we have atresia or absence to recanalize, to recanalize of both extra and intrahepatic bile ducts. In other words, we have Atretic intrahepatic bowel ducts and also atretic extrahepatic bowel ducts, like common hepatic duct, cystic duct is also atretic, which usually drains the gallbladder. And the common bowel duct or colodocus is very, very commonly atretic. And even more, biliary atresia is the generalized pathology of the biliary tree. In other words, it does not affect only the biliary ducts, it can and commonly affects the gallbladder itself. The gallbladder might be abnormal, malformed in some kind of way, or we might actually have an absent gallbladder. And you can imagine that if the bile cannot drain all the way to the duodenum, then we will have this symptoms of uh, abnormal, symptoms of the uh, obstructive jaundice, right? There will be direct hyperbilirubinemia, there might be hypercholesterolemia at the same time we will have acolic stools acolic stools are the white pale stools and they are caused by the absence of stercobilin in the stools let me remind you that uh, stercobilin is the metabolite of urobilinogen and the urobilinogen is derived from the direct bilirubin that it, that reaches the duodenum so if In case of biliary atresia, direct bilirubin cannot reach duodenum and the remainder of the small intestines, then it cannot be converted to urobilinogen and stercobilin. So, if there is no stercobilin, there is no brown discoloration of the stool, and this is why the stool will be pale or white. And at the same time, since there is the backflow of the bile, this causes. General inflammation in the intrahepatic bile ducts, which will cause intrahepatic bile duct proliferation. And finally, there will be hepatic fibrosis. So, untreated biliary atresia commonly causes early onset, very, very early onset cirrhosis. And this is it. This is biliary atresia. And as you already probably realized the main idea behind this condition is to recognize the case in the clinical vignette. So they will tell you that this is a newborn with the jaundice that did not resolve within the first few days of life. And then when you checked bilirubin, this is direct hyperbilirubinemia and right upper quadrant ultrasound shows, let's suppose, the absent gallbladder or some kind of abnormality in the biliary duct. And the last thing that I would like to tell you about biliary atresia is the treatment option for this. The treatment for biliary atresia is the procedure called Kasai procedure. Kasai procedure is also referred to as hepatoportoenterostomy. Hepatoportoenterostomy means that the small intestine gets physically attached to the liver, I mean, porta hepatis, and therefore, the bile can drain directly into the small intestine, into the duodenum. This is how we prevent the obstructive jaundice, and this is how we prevent subsequent hepatic fibrosis with intrahepatic bile duct proliferation. However, if treatment with hepatoportoenterostomy is delayed, or if, despite the treatment the baby develops cirrhosis, then the only possible option of treatment is actually the liver transplant, because as we know, there is no way back to reverse the fibrosis in the liver, or for all intents and purposes, in any organ system. And this was discussion about biliary atresia. Let's move on to bronchiolitis. And just like we do for almost all the conditions, let's think about the name of the condition itself. It's bronchiolitis, meaning it's inflammation of the bronchioles, not the bronchi, but the bronchioles, right? Bronchioles and the terminal bronchioles. Bronchiolitis is almost exclusively pediatric condition. It's most common in the kids less than two years of age. And let me ask a question to you. Do you guys remember the most common microbe responsible for bronchiolitis? Yes, yes, that's respiratory syncytial virus, or shortly, RSV. Now, how do we know that an infant has bronchiolitis? How can we suspect bronchiolitis? Well, respiratory syncytial virus first causes the symptoms of the upper respiratory infection. So, the infant might have nasal congestion or rhinorrhea, and she or he might also get the cuff. However, in the later stage of this infection, we will have respiratory distress with wheezing. And wheezing is very, very important here because when we say that the patient, develops whee- patient exhibits wheezing, it means that there is problem in the small airways wheezing is almost always due to small airway narrowing, whether it's bronchioles or terminal bronchioles. And as we already mentioned, bronchiolitis is bronchiolar problem, right? This is in contrast to strider. Strider is almost always due to large airway narrowing. It might be trachea, it might be glottis or epiglottis. So can you give me your ideas of what kind of conditions can cause stridor in the pediatrics. I hope you're telling me that croup can cause stridor, which is caused by par influenza virus, and it's also called acute laryngotracheobronchitis, and at the same time epiglotitis, which is usually bacterial infection, can also cause the uh, stridor. Okay, that was a side note, let's get back to bronchiolitis. And in respiratory distress, when we say that this baby has respiratory distress, we mean that there will be tachypnea. And in infants, tachypnea is respiratory rate at least 60 breaths per minute. There might be accessory muscle retractions, for example, intercostal muscles. There might be the involvement of the scalene muscles as well. And there might also be nasal flaring. There is no specific treatment for bronchiolitis. Treatment is simply supportive. We might need to administer humidified air, but the bronchodilators usually don't help in bronchiolitis because the pathophysiology of bronchiolitis is totally different from the diseases that are treated with bronchodilators, right? So bronchiolitis is an infection and the spastic response of the bronchioles to that infection. However, bronchodilators usually work in the bronchospasm, which is caused either by muscle hyperactivity like asthma or inflammation, like non-infectious inflammation, let's say COPD, Okay. Now, what are the complications of bronchiolitis? Well, it might result in respiratory failure, but more importantly, I think the higher yield complication is apnea. And the risk for apnea is especially high if the baby with bronchiolitis is less than two months old. Finally, we will discuss the prevention of bronchiolitis. Do you guys remember which type of... So what drug is used to prevent bronchiolitis? Yes, that's palivizumab, right? But let me make one point very clear. Palivizumab is for prevention. Palivizumab is not used to treat the bronchiolitis. Once the bronchiolitis starts, there is no specific treatment. Once again, everything's supportive here. But there are specific indications of who should get palivizumab because not all babies get palivizumab for bronchiolitis prevention. If baby is very, very premature, specifically if the baby is born at less than 29 weeks gestation, this is when palivizumab is recommended as bronchiolitis prophylaxis. At the same time, if the baby has significant lung or heart disease, this is when this neonate is at high risk for RSV infection, and therefore, he or she needs palivizumab prophylaxis. For example, if the baby has, let's say, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and we'll talk about this condition in in very short time, then we might consider giving palivizumab. Or if the baby has some kind of congenital heart disease, which is hemodynamically significant, here we mostly mean the right-to-life chance, right? For example, tetralogy of a fallow, then we also need to give palivizumab because these babies are at high risk for complications from RSV bronchiolitis. And this was the discussion of bronchiolitis. Now, as I promised, let's discuss bronchopulmonary dysplasia or BPD in short and it would be logical if we started with pathogenesis, right? There are two hypotheses about BPD. We have an old and a new hypothesis of the bronchopulmonary dysplasia, but before we do this, before we discuss them, let's remind ourselves of the clinical scenario in which bronchopulmonary dysplasia usually develops. Bronchopulmonary dysplasia usually develops in the babies who are premature, who develop neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, and who need prolonged mechanical ventilation. The old hypothesis of the BPD suggested that BPD is caused not by neonatal respiratory distress itself, but it's caused by the prolonged mechanical ventilation and hyperoxia or oxygen toxicity, right? We know that when we have extra oxygen in the tissue, it means that we have accumulation of the oxygen radicals, right? Oxygen is always an electron, electron acceptor in the electron transport chain. So if we have extra oxygen, that cannot be reduced to water, we will accumulate free oxygen radicals in the tissues, in this case in the lungs. And then old BPD hypothesis suggested that these free oxygen radicals destroy the normal tissue, normal lung parenchyma, resulting in interstitial fibrosis and interstitial edema. However, the new hypothesis of BPD suggests that prematurity has a much bigger role in the pathophysiology of the BPD than it was previously supposed. In other words, the prematurity of the baby, the prematurity itself results in arrest of pulmonary development, right? We know that the last two stages of lung development is secular, and alveolar stages. So if baby is born preterm, then the baby is uh, in the secular or the early alveolar stage of the lung development, and there is the arrest of pulmonary development, and therefore we will have the alveoli with primary septation, meaning those large big septae with the large balloon-like structures, which are not mature alveoli. Yeah, so this is the new hypothesis. How do we diagnose bronchopulmonary dysplasia? Well, we know that the preterm babies who develop NRDS require exogenous surfactant administration, but at the same time, they need mechanical ventilation, right? They often get intubated. Let's say that the baby gets intubated due to NRDS and well, his vital signs are stable, but then when we try to extubate the baby, we see that the saturation goes down and down and down. It means that the baby still needs intubation, right? So if we have at least 28 days or 4 weeks of supplemental oxygen requirement, this should at least raise our suspicion for the BPD. And plus, if the baby has the respiratory distress without the oxygen supplement, like tachypnea and intercostal retractions, this is another clue that maybe NRDS is now followed with bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Okay, how do we diagnose BPD? Well, we should perform chest x-ray because it's cheap and it has enough sensitivity, usually, to detect the changes characteristic of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And these changes mostly include the diffuse haziness. And this haziness is the interstitial fibrosis diffusely throughout both lungs. At the same time, there might be some cystic and the fibrotic changes as well. Okay, and finally, what's the treatment? Well, we need to optimize the nutrition of this baby, and this is necessary in order for the baby to have enough nutrition to regenerate the lung tissue. At the same time, we should restrict the fluid because we don't want to superimpose the pulmonary edema on this baby's interstitial fibrosis. We should also try to wean the baby from the respirator because, as we said, Oxygen in hyperoxia is hypothesized to play a significant role in bronchopulmonary dysplasia and we really don't want to continue extra oxygen supplementation in this baby. And finally, let's talk about prognosis. Usually, bronchopulmonary dysplasia has very favorable prognosis in a sense that the babies affected by BPD develop the new alveoli by the secondary septation and their spirometry results might actually normalize as well. And this was discussion of the bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Let's now talk about the scalp hematomas. We have to discuss three different conditions in this subsection of our today's episode. This is caput sedanium, subgallial hemorrhage, and cephalohematoma. But before we do this, we need to remind ourselves of the scalp anatomy. Let me remind you that scalp itself, the word scalp, can be used as an acronym or abbreviation for the layers of the scalp. So, S stands for the skin, C stands for Uh, dense, irregular connective tissue immediately under the skin. A is gallia aponeurotica. So A for aponeurotica, which is this uh, collagenous tissue between the frontalis and occipitalis uh, muscles. Under the gallia aponeurotica, we have loose connective tissue. And finally, we have outer periosteum. And the reason why we need to know these layers is to imagine between which layers we have the accumulation of blood in each of these three conditions. Let's start with the most superficial one, which is caput sacedanium, right? Caput sacedanium is under the skin and dense regular connective tissue, but above the gallia aponeurotica. And in this space, there is no midline restriction. So there is no suture that will restrict the flow of blood across the midline. That's why caput succedaneum will cross the midline, will cross the suture lines. And that's a very, very important distinguishing factor between caput succedaneum and cephalohematoma. Usually, kaputza is not characterized by accumulation of a lot of blood. It's usually mild to moderate amount of blood. Let's move on to subgallial hemorrhage. And I think the, uh, the name itself tells us the exact location of subgallial hemorrhage. So, subgallial hemorrhage is sub- Gallial hemorrhage. So it's under the gallia aponeurotica and loose connective tissue, but above the outer periosteum. And the space between these two layers is very, very broad. What I'm trying to say to you here is that the baby with subgallial hemorrhage can have a lot of blood accumulating in this region. So we might actually get uh, like mild hypotension, for example, and reflex reflex tachycardia. And at the same time, in any of these three conditions, accumulated blood and the heme group of the accumulated hemoglobin molecules finally gets degraded into the bilirubin, right? So we might also see the later development of jaundice or at least mild hyperbilirubinemia. And... Subgallial hemorrhage, just like caput sedanium, also crosses the suture lines. And now let's talk about the last type of the scalp hematoma, which is cephalohematoma. That's the deepest type because cephalohematoma is between the outer periosteum and the skull bone itself. So, outer periosteum, between the outer periosteum and the outer table of the skull bone, because let me remind you that the skull bone is the bone which has outer table, deploy, and the inner table. And an absolute characteristic of cephalohematoma, which distinguishes it from the other two, is that cephalohematoma does not cross the suture lines. Now let's explain why this is the case, because I don't want us to simply memorize the things. I want us to understand why the things are the way they are. In cephalohematoma, we already mentioned that the blood accumulates under the outer periosteum. But here's the thing: outer and inner periosteal periosteal membranes are actually continuous. What I mean is that outer periosteum folds inside the sagittal suture and then it continues as the inner periosteum. So outer and inner periosteum are single continuous layer which is folded at the place of sagittal suture. And since this is a single layer, it does not allow the blood underneath the periosteum to cross the suture line. So this is how we differentiate Caput succedaneum, subgaleal hemorrhage, and cephalohematoma. And now we will move on to the last condition that we are going to discuss in this episode. This is cerebral palsy. I think the most important thing about cerebral palsy that we need to know for USMLE Step Two CK exam is the risk factor and the risk factors. For the cerebral palsy because it's not that hard to recognize cerebral palsy in a stem and we'll definitely talk about the clinical features by which you can recognize the cerebral palsy but first of all let's start with the most important things what are the risk factors for the cerebral palsy the most important risk factor is prematurity Premature babies are much more likely to develop cerebral palsy than the term babies. At the same time, a low birth weight is another important risk factor. Let me take let me tell you a side note, or let me ask you a question. Guys, do you know what weight is considered to be a low birth weight? It's anything less than 2.5 kilograms. The normal weight of a neonate is anywhere from 2.5 to 4 kilograms. More than 4 kilograms is characteristic for the macrosomic babies. The weight anywhere from 1.5 to 2.5 kilograms is considered to be low birth weight or LBW and weight anywhere less than 1.5 kilograms is considered to be very low birth weight or VLBW. Okay, Now, what are the clinical features for cerebral palsy? There are several different types of cerebral palsy, but we don't have to necessarily know how to distinguish these types from each other according to the symptoms. So we should know what the general symptoms might look like in cerebral palsy. The patient, the baby, will have delayed motor milestones, meaning that the baby will have delayed onset of walking and crawling and so on. At the same time, there will be abnormal tone of the muscles. There might be hyperreflexia and usually cerebral palsy is uh, characterized by hyperreflexia and dystonia, but there might also be hyporeflexia and hypotonia. Cerebral palsy is commonly accompanied by the seizures and it might also be characterized by the intellectual disability. Diagnosis of cerebral palsy is clinical. There is no specific finding on the imaging modality which is sufficient to diagnose cerebral palsy. So it's actually the combination of both clinical findings and the imaging, the brain imaging, specifically MRI. On the MRI, what we might see in cerebral palsy is periventricular white matter abnormalities also referred to periventricular leukomalacia. And brain MRI might also reveal the lesions in the basal ganglia. Now, if we talk about the treatment of cerebral palsy, well, we need to integrate these individuals in the active life of our society. And for this, we need mostly symptomatic management, right? So we might recommend the physical therapy, also occupational therapy, and the speech therapy so that their functionality increases in society. Uh, We also commonly need nutritional support for patients with cerebral palsy because they usually are unable to feed themselves. And finally, we said that commonly the cerebral palsy is characterized by hypertonia, right? And the constant. Muscle dystonia might be not only very disturbing and discomforting, but it might also be painful. And therefore, we need antispasmodic medications, right? So we can use literally any antispasmodic medication, let's say baclofen or dantrolene, tizanidine, cyclobenzaprine, benzos, so anything. We just need to relieve the spasm and the pain induced by this spasm. Okay, so Severius, we have discussed multiple different topics across the pediatrics in this episode and let's summarize everything that we have discussed here. Again, there are many, many different topics that we discussed in this episode. There are approximately 13-14 topics, and the main take-home message for practically all of them is to know their current diagnostic algorithm, if there is any, and their treatment, because treatment is very, very important for the USMLE Step2CK exam. Zoosameliers, you can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know what we can do to improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention and see you on the next episode.